everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chandelier Chats. I'm your host, Michelle Accor. Today we have an absolutely splendid guest. Her name is Jessica McGuire. She is a trauma-informed physiotherapist who helps people improve their vagus nerve. And today we are going to be sharing about a new perspective into understanding trauma and the nervous system. So please join me in welcoming Jessica McGuire. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Rochelle. Thank you so much. I'm um, going really well and I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I know it is morning time where you are. So thank you for being up this morning so we can do this recording. I just wanted to start by asking you, Jessica, so what inspired you to become a trauma-informed physiotherapist with a focus around the vagus nerve? Sure. So my work started out looking at a lot of people who had chronic health conditions as well as chronic pain when I was a physiotherapist. So I'd see a lot of people come in who were had persistent pain that wasn't getting better. And it would be particularly around times when they were experiencing a lot of stress. Um, and, you know, they'd get a little bit better, but then the pain would come back and it was often with a lot of patterns around things like they would have insomnia, they would have gut issues. Um, there would be a lot of things tying in together that looked like, you know, this was bigger than just say having a sore shoulder or a sore back. And the pain science has really evolved a lot over the last, I'd say 10, 15 years to say that the paradigm that we looked at pain was like, oh, I've got an issue in my shoulder, was really was really saying, actually, when it becomes chronic, the nervous system can become sensitized and it's more an overprotective nervous system rather than the actual site of the injury. And so seeing that we really can't separate the, the body and the brain. So it's a little bit like how the nervous system might become sensitized is if you type an X on your keyboard, you know, you'd expect one to come up on the screen. Well, in this case with people with chronic pain, it's like 10 X's come up on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so that for me was, you know, really fascinating to try and understand the neuroscience, but also why these changes happen. And so with pain, there was a lot of evidence to say that the main things of why this happened is around beliefs. So what are patients actually believing? And also for me as a physio, to be really aware of my language that I used. So for instance, studies have shown that telling somebody they have a slipped disc when, you know, the lower back is actually very stable and a disc is really firmly held in place to the vertebrae adjacent to it. But mm -hmm. that picture, that language of slipped makes you think, oh, my back's unstable. And so we see fear comes into it. We see movement patterns change and we see more pain. And that's just from that language. But then some really good studies have shown that when you change beliefs, not as many areas light up in the networks in the brain and pain will go down. Fascinating. It was really amazing to me. So I really wanted to get to the heart of that. And what the science also looked at was this bi-directional communication was also happening with the vagus nerve. So I would see patients with a lot of gut disorders when they were feeling stressed. Um, I'd, I'd done previous study looking at ECGs of the heart. And so that always fascinated me. And 
we know that that information that's coming from the body is going up to the brain via the vagus nerve. And so 80% of that is traveling up to the brain and changing things that way. We often had this paradigm that the brain was like the boss that oversaw everything and the body just responded, but it's not, it's a two-way communication. So for me, I really wanted to dive into the vagus nerve more um, because I had that understanding with modern pain science, but I wanted to know why gut disorders happen when people were had experienced chronic and traumatic stress. And Mm -hmm. it just happened to be that the group of people I worked with had mostly been going through chronic and traumatic stress. So I got to know them quite well and see these patterns. And I felt a little bit like as a physio, I was just putting a bandaid over the pain rather than getting to the source of what the problem was, which lying at the heart of the actual pain was a nervous system that was dysregulated. So that's what I wanted to learn how to help people with. Oh my gosh. Okay. So much to unpack here. (laughs) Can you please break down what is the nervous system to start with for people who maybe don't know that language? Mm -hmm. And then what is the vagus nerve and how do they work together? Sure. So we have a central nervous system which is our brain and our spinal cord. And then we also have the autonomic nervous system. So this is what the vagus nerve is involved in. And you could think of it a little bit like a car driving along and the accelerator would be the sympathetic nervous system. So it speeds us up, we go a little bit faster. Um, And you could think of this as say, you know, when you were quite stressed with something you want to have energy to deal with it. So this is a healthy thing. Stress isn't bad if, as long as we recover fully from it. So let's say we um, are coming into something quite demanding at work. Say we've got to give a presentation. We will feel that mobilizing energy come into our system and that can help us focus. It can give us um, the energy to to keep our attention on what we're doing and really be on, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It can also take us up into fight or flight where we might experience a racing heart, we feel anxious, we feel agitated and we've got a lot of energy coming into our system. Mm -hmm. And we used to just think about the autonomic nervous system as having a break that was the parasympathetic um, branch of that. So we had the sympathetic, parasympathetic. But what we know now, and since the research by um, Stephen Porges on polyvagal theory, is you could think of the car as having two brakes. So there's one brake at the foot, and that's one branch of the vagus nerve called the ventral vagus branch. And then we also have a branch that is called the dorsal vagal, which I like to think of as putting the handbrake on to stop. Mm -hmm. So it really can slow us down quite a lot and it slows us down so much that sometimes we go down into feeling shut down disconnected we dissociate from our body and that can end up taking us down into chronic fatigue and feeling quite flat so the balance of all of this working well together is what a healthy vagus nerve does and when it's working well we can move between these states. So we're flexible, we're adaptable. None of those states are bad or wrong to be in. 
it's just that following chronic and traumatic stress, the vagus nerve can stop working so well. And what we see is that people may spend a long period of time stuck in that too much, like going too fast or going Mm -hmm. too slow. So in that analogy of a car, we want a car that goes at the right speed for the conditions that we're traveling in. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I remember you posted something about how the vagus nerve is the epicenter of the mind-body connection. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. So when we look at it, how it, where it runs from, it starts out in our brainstem, mm-hmm. which is like if you feel that bony part at the back of the skull, it's deep under there and it runs down. It goes to, we've got branches going to our heart and to our face connecting and then down into the gut, right down to the colon. It's got a lot of branches coming out from there. So what we're seeing is that the way a visceral organ functioning or the, how about the health of our organs and how they're functioning is mirrored in psychological health and psychological health is mirrored in how the organs are functioning. Again, it's like that bi-directional communication again. So if you think of it a little bit like a loop, so we have those, the 80% of the fibers carrying information from the gut and the heart up to the brain. Mm-hmm. So that information can be what's happening in the gut microbiome. It can be about our digestion. It can be sensations. So, you know, we feel, we might feel sick to our stomach or we might feel also butterflies in our tummy. That information is being carried up as well as from our heart. So heart rate variability is really important here. But again, we can feel warm-hearted, open-hearted, and that's carried up. So this then communicates with an area in our brain called the survival brain, which is where we determine if people, places, environments, situations are safe, dangerous, or Mm life-threatening. So then that survival brain, particularly the amygdala, will if it thinks okay we're safe from that information and what we see going on outside it will actually send the signals of those 20 percent of the fibers back down to the body that creates a regulation effect basically so our heart slow is is beating nice and slowly we've got what we call the vagal break working which is the branch that goes to our heart at a digestion functions really nicely our immune system's happy our endocrine system's happy but let's say that information that's coming up is things aren't right and what we see outside and here then that those 20 percent of the fibers will change so that can be that the vagal break which is controlling the beat of our heart it comes off so our heart speeds up we feel the surge of adrenaline We feel that the blood flow goes away from our gut and to our arms and our legs. And so our digestion changes. So there's this ongoing loop that's happening between our body and the organs and also what we're perceiving to to happen. But that detection of threat in the survival brain, it will be influenced by what's happened in our past. So our brains or our nervous system is always learning, always changing. It's dynamic and it learns through experience. So 
we say that this memories are stored implicitly, which means when we may not be aware that um, we're learning and we've been learning since we're children, but they, these memories affect how we respond to stress today. Mm -hmm. So let's say a little girl goes up to a dog and tries to pat it when she's little and the dog knocks her over and she experiences huge stress from that. And there's no parent there or adult to calm her down. So her survival brain is learning, oh, dogs aren't safe. Next time she sees a dog, she has strong stress responses come up. Mm -hmm. Let's say, on the other hand, the same situation happens her parent is there, calms her down, soothes her through co-regulation, shows her how to pat the dog without getting knocked over. Her survival brain learns, ah, oh, I've got resilience, I can cope. So it's these situations that add up over time and things that are very stressful is when our survival brain learns the most. And it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view that this would be the case because then next time we're more prepared to deal with it. But unfortunately, it can also be a little bit of a projection we put on top of things now. And we might be safe, but our survival brain thinks that it's a threat. Yes. Yes. I have the saying that our perceptions are deception sometimes because how we, per yeah, how we perceive what is coming at us from our outside world, as you said, may or may not be a threat, but how we're perceiving it due to how we were uh, you know, impacted as a child is, is huge. It's huge. I, like I even myself recognize so many times where someone will say something to me and I'm like, Whoa, why would I feel upset about that? Like, this has nothing to do with me. This is whatever. And then I go away with it. And, you know, five minutes later, I'm like, Oh, it's because my mom said this to me when I was this old and you, you, and I can piece it together. I know a lot of people aren't in that place yet where they can tie those things together. So I'm curious can you speak a little bit more about co-regulation and the importance of that and the necessity of that? Sure. I love this topic so much because I feel we've had a big shift in conversations around not being codependent. Mm -hmm. And I think there's almost like this uh, sense of shame that if we need other people, it's wrong. But when we look at this biologically again and go right back to when we're first born, a branch of the vagus nerve that we have, part of it isn't actually myelinated fully when we're born. So myelination is the fatty sheath that covers a nerve. It's like casing over electrical wiring. So it makes the conduction happen well. And the way that this develops is through our connections and social bonds. So from when we're born, it's biologically essential that we have co-regulation, but it is right throughout the lifespan as well. Mm -hmm. So how we developed as humans was the part of our nervous system that has to do with co-regulation or connection is more recently evolved. So if we look back, we see that humans that learn to work together, cooperate, um, collaborate, Mm -hmm. survived they did the best and so within our own within our own makeup this is what we need so when a when a child's quite small they don't have this ability to regulate their own nervous system we really need that to come from others but that will set us up 
for life. Um, when we look at, say, how we were taught or how we were attuned to. So attunement is how we're really seen, felt and heard. So let's say, for instance, Rochelle, you're telling me about something really hard for you, something you're really sad and you're having this awful time. And I just jump in with, you'll be right. We just got to keep going. So it's a mismatch of attunement. And immediately you probably will feel this visceral sense of, oh, which we call biological rudeness, where what we expect we're going to get, we don't have. And that's where we can get this, what you were talking about, where someone says something, we might feel this. Oh. So that can be our own stuff, yes. But it can also be that, you know, we have a little bit of, um, yeah, that shame around needing, not wanting to be needy. But as humans, we need each other. So through co-regulation, when we look at this as we as we grow up and as we develop and our nervous system has learnt from how our parents or early caregivers co-regulated us, that sets us up for attachments later on, but it also is what sets the foundation for our own self-regulation. So I talk about this as a map. Let's say your parents gave you the map that was whenever you um, experience you know, a bit of nervousness, it ends up being anxiety and panic. Or if you're experiencing that sense of, say you get criticized or you get feedback that's not so great, it can lead to strong shame. And that's if we haven't had really good attunement, regulation, that kind of thing. So we want to learn as we get older to work on our own self-regulation because we can actually be our, a friend to our own distressed self by using tools of self-regulation. But that need for co-regulation doesn't go away, particularly when we're stressed. So the people that can just, you know, we think of it needing to be that almost like we talk with our friend and tell them everything, it doesn't even need to be that. It could be that whilst I'm around you, you're grounded, you're able to stay in what we call the state of ventral vagal activation, where your ventral vagal branch is working. And eventually my nervous system will come to mirror you. So that can just be through your expression, the tone of your voice, your gestures and postures. I don't, we don't even need to talk about what's wrong with me. It can just be being around you. And that's coming through what we call the social engagement system, which is the branch of the vagus nerve that runs from the heart and connects to um, cranial nerves that innovate speech and also um, facial expression and involved in postures as well. So we can be around people who are amazingly regulated and eventually that will bring us into a state of co-regulation. Um, and I just think that's amazing. I love that you explain that so eloquently because I feel like you just described my husband. <laughs> he's, like, he's literally like the most grounded man. Like when I, when I think of him, I picture like this grandiose oak tree with roots, you know, a hundred meters down and a hundred meters across. And even when the biggest storms come through, maybe a branch might kind of wave a little bit, but he's He's unshakable. And when I'm around him, I'm much more relaxed and I'm much more calm. And I'm like, this is amazing. Why don't I feel like this all the time? But that makes so much sense. 
there's a lot of people talk about, oh, it's just the energy. It's just the energy. I don't think it's just the energy. It's actually your physiological, biological responses to the way someone is engaging and interacting with you. If they kind of have that standoffish kind of closed arms crossed, legs crossed, you might start to feel a little, okay, well, am I doing something? And your brain may start firing in all different directions trying to go, oh, well, I must be doing something wrong or this person doesn't want to talk to me or whatever the story is that maybe is subconscious. I'm curious, is that something that you also agree on or is that something that you see in your practice as well? Oh, look, it's absolutely true. So, I mean, the co-regulation factor, but also reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the giving and receiving in relationships. So that can come from communication. So like you're saying, if, um, you know, if, if there's this mutual openness in connection with, with conversation, um, but also expressed in body language, and we also see it, you know, so say if, if, if we took turns in talking, we get this beautiful reciprocity coming back and forth. Um, and we see it also with giving and receiving care. So relationships that have high reciprocity, there will be that back and forth. Now, I think it's fair to point out that there are chapters in people's lives where hard things happen and one person receives more care, one person gives more care. That's understandable. But relationships where there's low reciprocity, where it's often one person might be taking and one person might be giving, um, or it doesn't feel like there's that openness back and forth, that will actually turn our survival responses on. So if in a bid to make a connection, there's not that, you know, and, and really this is, this is primal stuff, like turning away is actually taking away that, you know, social engagement system. We'll immediately feel that sense of, ah, oh, okay. So, so it will, it will within us heighten our own nervous system. And I think it's really interesting to look at um, these connections and these needs for good people where there is that reciprocity as, you know, a foundation for our life, because we talk a lot about success and maybe success is our ability to be a co-regulator for another person, not how much money we have. I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, such an important part. If we can say for another person, I'm going to do be able to do that for them, but not at a cost where I become exhausted, which mm -hmm. would more be looking at, you know, a codependent type thing, but whilst taking care of my own self. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, Jess, can you describe for us, what are some signs and symptoms of dysregulation? I know you have a whole list of these. Sure, sure. So if we look at, if we go back to the car analogy, um, and we talked about the accelerator being on. We could think of, say, the accelerator being on too much. So, so let's say we're stuck on on. If I, was, if I was experiencing dysregulation in that way, we'd say that's for hyper arousal, so H-Y-P-E-R, and I might be experiencing extended periods of anxiety, agitation, anger. We could look at then how I might behave so I find it really hard to sit down and relax at the end of the day maybe I would get busier doing more because it's a mobilizing energy sometimes we feel we've got to hurry through our work or quickly mm -hmm. do as much as we can 
Yep. Uh, so I, yep, I know that feeling really yep, well. That <laughs> That's me. Uh, and then this state tends to, if we spend a long period of time here, we might find ourselves, unfortunately, finding ways to bring an artificial relaxation, which can come through alcohol, food. Um, maybe we jump online and just spend a long time trying to distract ourselves from that. In our relationships, if we're dysregulated for hyperarousal, we tend to see we might start arguments because of the fight branch of fight or flight um, or become really critical and blaming other people. So I just want to frame that anger is can be a really healthy emotion if someone's overstepped a boundary. And we're not trying to say we should be calm all the time, but this is looking at a pattern that we see rather than we do it once or it's a one-time event. This is like where we feel like this a lot of the time mm-hmm. and we'd say it's dysregulation. And I would say this pattern, we tend to see insomnia, chronic pain. We see gut disorders as well arising. So then we can look at hypo arousal where people get dysregulated. This would be like when I said the handbrake was on. Mm-hmm. So we're stuck on off and this brings that sense of flatness. We're feeling down. We might feel dissociated from our body and numb. So it's hard to tune into what we're feeling. And we sometimes look at ourselves as being lazy, but people tend to, let's say you've had a really big project to do and you've been pushing and pushing yourself and you've been in that sympathetic state. It's often that we then drop down and crash into a burnout phase so we we feel that extreme fatigue but we can then end up procrastinating on the things that we need to do and this isn't laziness it's just a physiological response of our nervous system hitting almost like a burnout Um, but it can also happen if we tend to respond to stresses with this kind of response, which happens if we've experienced more traumatic stress. And so in this state, we tend to see the chronic fatigue, just that heaviness, depressed, flat feeling. We can also have gut disorders here as well. Interesting. Can people go between hyperarousal and hypoarousal if they've experienced stress and trauma? Yeah. Yeah. So two things can happen there. We can, you know, spend time where we're dysregulated for hyper and then hypo. But as I said before, you could crash and burn. So go from hyperarousal and drop down. Um, And then we do see that people oscillate between the two. And the reason for that is when I experience not like just a, a slightly stressful event, I will have that spike in sympathetic. So let's say that's a line going up and then I'll have a drop in the vagus nerve. So it'll okay. actually stop working as well. But then they eventually come back to a healthy baseline where like they recover from that. But the key for that is discharging that stress activation and letting the nervous system recover. Then if I experience, say, chronic stress, so let's say um, I had a long period of time in lockdown, my business was suffering, my relationship, you know, and it just went on and on, we would see that same spike in the sympathetic, the loss of the vagus nerve working as well. And the chronic nature of that is more what causes that dysregulation rather than the 
the um, the intensity of the stress if that makes sense so mm-hmm. there's say there's no period of getting to recover and come back down to that baseline that brings that dysregulation the vagus nerve stops working so well but in extreme stress or traumatic stress we do see that activation of the sympathetic so that spikes but we also see a co-activation of the dorsal vagal state as well so what what this looks like is like a freeze response where there's a lot of activation of sympathetic energy and there's a lot of activation of the break. So the person feels stuck, but they've got all this sense of activation going on. And that's typically why people will oscillate between the two or they go into that freeze state. Oh, that makes so much sense because it's fight, flight, freeze, and fawn are the the different stages of trauma response correct yeah we we definitely say that fight flat and freeze are the three fawn has come in more recently um and it's certainly a response but it would more likely be a blend of a few of the states rather than a pure physiological response on its own if that makes sense um you know we know we've got the fight branch we know we can feel that flight and freeze but fawn's a little bit different in the way that it's not a pure physiological state on its own. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, Jessica, how does understanding the vagus nerve support us in understanding trauma and the body's response to trauma? Sure. So I think what really helps us see is if we think about the different states of our nervous system a little bit like a traffic light. So the green state is when the ventral branch is working well. So you can imagine that's like the foot brake and it's just keeping us going at the right speed. So this is where our social engagement system's working at its best. We're primed for connection. Our immune system's working well. We're feeling good, calm and safe. The yellow state is where the sympathetic nervous system is active. So in this state, we will lose that engagement of the vagus nerve with our social engagement system. So we can hear people's voice becomes a little bit more monotone. And that's the inhibition of the vagus nerve. Their face will appear flatter. So they might just smile with the lower part of the face, but you won't see that smiling around the eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's very hard for them to um, be in a state for learning or for, because that's one more point, the middle ear muscles even change in this state so that instead of hearing the mid frequency sound which is the sound of the human voice which we hear in that green state once we go into that yellow stage we change the frequency that we hear to hear predator sounds which are more low frequency so having that ability to communicate and listen and negotiate when we're in this state is hard then if we thought of the red state as the dorsal vagal state, we do see that freeze response happening there. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the energy is immobilization. So we often think of, you know, when someone's had something really scary happen or something hard, why didn't they just leave? Or why didn't they take action? Because in that freeze state, it's biologically impossible to sometimes stand up for yourself, to like speak what you want to say, and also to have that 
energy to get out of there and run away. So I think it's really helpful that we have this framework to understand why we may have reacted in certain ways ourselves at times, you know, so say somebody shocks us with saying something really horrible and we just sort of go, that can be that energy of like deer in the headlights. Um, But also for trauma survivors, to reduce that shame and blame that they have for themselves, it's really about seeing that, um, you know, it wasn't their fault if they didn't run away or couldn't get out of that situation. And, And I think that's a really useful framework for us to understand. But even for, say, kids who've had a history of trauma and tend to go into those different states, how much harder that's going to be for them at school and the ways that they might need more movement to regulate themselves and then come back to being ready to learn. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, even from my own experience, like I had a very traumatic childhood and I think to myself, all of the times where I've just been frozen, wanting to do something, wanting to say something and just being can't say or do anything. Or then I've been in the fight, you know, where I've like picked an argument with somebody or I've searched for conflict kind of thing. And it's just so interesting to hear the way that it kind of ebbs and flows and can go back and forth. And it's, it's like, it's uh, definitely developing a deeper awareness and understanding for, for me. And I can imagine for everybody listening, their mind is probably blown right now. I, I think it's helpful just to have that awareness to see that in a lot of cases, that behavior isn't that we are bad people. If we find ourselves, you know, why didn't I say something? Or why did I say that argument? And it's not an excuse to say that we can do whatever we want by any means. But when we understand why, and we have that new perspective, it's just so much more freeing. And we can build this autonomic awareness that we talk about, you know, classes and programs where we can say, okay, I'm in this state. This is why I feel, act, and I'm thinking this way. This is what I can do to take care of myself in this state. And, you know, think about the difference it means, say, in your personal relationships if, you know, you tend to be the person that goes into fight and you recognise it and you pause before you say that really critical comment and say, oh, okay, this is coming from a place inside of me that feels this anger, What's a, what's a more, um, what's something I can do that's going to serve me better than start this argument or criticize? So it, it's profound stuff because it puts us back into the driver's seat of our own physiology rather than feeling like we're just reacting to things. Yes, respond versus react. Exactly. Responding, not reacting. Exactly. <laughs> that, that is a life lesson I think many people are in practice of learning right now. And it's ongoing, you know, we're never going to get to that stage where we don't move into, um, we don't sometimes react in ways that we don't like. And I think Mm -hmm. that's part of being human as we learn that we give ourselves permission to make mistakes. Um, But, you know, as long as it's not where if we're dysregulated, that's our home. We don't want to live there. That's right. Yes, I agree. Jessica, with that, I would love if you could share about your Vegas Nerve program that you offer. Sure. So we have a six-week program which starts on November the 8th and it's covering really all the things that I've talked about here. 
um, we develop that autonomic awareness. So we get to know the different states. And then we also have many, many tools to help people bring that re-regulation to their nervous system and also resilience. Um, a big part of it is learning how to recover from stress mm -hmm. because when we teach our survival brain that it can stay a little bit more even keel when we've got demands and stresses, our tolerance for sensations and anxiety gets bigger and we don't move so much up into fight or flight or down to freeze. So we still feel those waves of sensations, um, but we're not reacting as much. We have the ability to respond. Amazing. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here. And I thank you for sharing your wisdom and all of this beautiful information to help us develop a better understanding of trauma and the nervous system and how those two play it out. And I would love for you to share, how can people get in touch with you? How can they get a hold of you? Sure. Thank you, Michelle. Um, so you, my website is a good place to find about our resources and that's just jessicamaguire.com. And our Instagram handle is repairing underscore the underscore nervous underscore system. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure having you and until next time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please don't forget to like and subscribe.